come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode number 49 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode here in October, I've watched quite a bit as, you know, I'm working through the Hooptober as well as 22 Shots of Moods and Horror Movie Challenges for the month. But the two featured reviews on this episode are going to be from 1960, The Flesh and the Fiends, and then the 2020 release is going to be the Brandon Cronenberg film Possessor. And it's going by the title of Possessor Uncut. And then also on this episode, I have many reviews of The Hills Have Eyes, Wrong Turn 2, Dead End, Wreck 2, Society, Saw 2, and Shivers. Now, I was watching a movie last night, but I have been a little bit under the weather this week. So it also kind of helped with, you know, being able to watch all the movies that I did. I did finish that this morning so what i'm gonna go ahead and do is just have that tacked on to the next episode not that it really matters to you but just kind of wanted to let you know that there but that's all i really kind of wanted to go over here for this intro what i'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to a musical break before i get into those mini reviews and i hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me Hawken hair were a terrible pair the deeds were beyond belief Walked underground in Edinburgh town, the cruelest kind of thief. For they stole the life from the city's poor, the city's waifs and strays. Got them drunk, laid them on a bunk, and smothered their lives away. Doing tanners close in the old west port, the rotten's had their lair. And many poor wretches to their good fetched in a box up to Surgeon Square. Ten pounds each was the deal they'd reached for the contents of every box. And denied folk life to satisfy the knife for anatomist Dr. Knox. Burke and Hare were a terrible pair, the deeds were beyond belief. They walked underground in Edinburgh town, the cruelest kind of thief. Sixteen souls departed this life at the hands of the villainous crew. Sure beats work, said lazy bugger Burke and Hare took a similar view. But their evil ways and the drunken days, nine months were cut short. For they grew too smart to the devilish art, and they very soon were caught. Burke and Hare were a terrible pair, the deeds were beyond belief. They worked on the ground in Edinburgh town, the cruelest kind of thief. William Hare got a terrible scare, turned super grass with glee. Snitched on his mate, left him to his fate, and he got away scot-free. 
William Burke dangled and chucked as the hangman ended his life. And the final twist, the town anatomist cut him up with his surgeon's knife. Burke and Hare were a terrible pair, their deeds were beyond belief. They worked underground in Edinburgh town, the cruelest kind of thief. For they stole the life from the city's poor, the city's waifs and strays. Got them drunk, laid them on a bunk and smothered their lives away, the swine. Smothered their lives away. for this week is going to be The Hills Have Eyes from 2006. This is directed by Alexander Aja, who also co-wrote this screenplay with Gregory Lavassier, and this is also giving credit to Wes Craven as it's based upon his film. This stars Ted Levine, Kathleen Quinlan, and Dan Bird. This is a horror thriller in a co-production between the United States, France, and Romania. This is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a family falls victim to a group of mutated cannibals in a desert far away from civilization. Now this is a film that I saw in theaters when it came out with a bunch of friends and I'm pretty sure I was the only horror fan in the group and it would have been right after my freshman year of college and I'll admit, I loved it after that initial viewing. I'm sure I had seen the original during that time and would have said at this time that, after that first viewing at least, that this movie was better than the original. I've seen it a few times throughout the years, but this is the only time with a, with a critical eye, which would be the second viewing that I've done with that. This is thanks to the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs and for October movie challenges, as well as to why I finally gave this another viewing. Now, this movie starts us off with some text saying about how between the years of like the mid-40s to the early 60s, that they were doing a lot of nuclear tests out west in like the desert and everything. Well... According to some newspaper headlines that we'll see later on is there was a group of miners in this area that went into their mines, survived everything, but then the radiation has kind of altered their genetics. Now, the government is claiming that this isn't real, but then we see a couple people who are collecting samples of different things get attacked by a deformed person who is extremely strong. And then we also see a sign nearby saying that there is a nuclear bomb testing site. And then this goes out to a gas station that is ran by Tom Bauer. He starts yelling about some stuff and saying how he's not going to trade with these people anymore, but we don't actually get to see who these people are. And then he's interrupted going through the items that they left him when a vehicle and its trailer pull up. The driver is Big Bob, who is Ted Levine, and he's honking his horn for service. And then with him is his family, and his wife is Ethel, who is Quinlan. Their eldest daughter is Lynn, who is Vanessa Shaw. And she's married to Doug, who is Aaron Stanford. They have a baby named Catherine, who is Mizey Camilleri Perosi. Now, Big Bob and Ethel have two more kids of Brenda, who is Emily D. Revan, and then Bobby, who is Dan Bird. And they inquire how to get back to the highway. And then at first, the attendant is directing them back the way they came. But then, as Big Bob's a little bit rude to him, he decides that he's going to give them this detour that's going to take them through the desert. Now, this detour leads them to a spike strip that punctures all their tires. They then crash into a rock, busting the axle and totaling the vehicle. 
And then it's decided that Big Bob is going to go one direction back to the gas station while Doug goes the other way to continue on with the road to see where it leads. And then Bobby is left in charge, and he gets upset with Brenda when she lets the dogs out of the trailer. Now, they have a male and female German Shepherds by the name of Beauty and Beast. Now, when he goes to follow this, he realizes there's people living in these hills as Beauty is killed and pretty much gutted. And then weird things start to happen as the other two who have kind of ventured off come to see some pretty creepy things which for Doug is that he finds a crater that is pretty much like a vehicle junkyard while Big Bob finds something much more dangerous. Now I do think this is a solid remake. I think this has a pretty interesting feel is that it feels like a completely different movie while bringing back some of the key scenes from the original in my opinion. And it's also kind of funny to me is I thought this movie was a little bit more brutal but that's really only like the last 20 to 30 minutes of the movie and I think we get some good kind of effects and everything that goes on there but other than that this movie really just is kind of tame for what I actually remembered it being and I'll actually admit that I think this is a little bit boring there for a stretch it might be about 15 minutes too long. But we get an interesting thing here, though, is that Doug is mocked by Big Bob and even to an extent Bobby for being a Democrat and not wanting to use a gun. And what I like here, though, is that we get to see him kind of change into a violent person and kind of just showing that despite what some people might think, these people that they think are being like weaklings actually have somebody inside. It just takes something to bring that out. It was also brought up on the Summer Challenge series that these mutants living out in the desert, that they probably would not be as altered by the radiation as they are, and I do agree with that as I've kind of reflected and watched this time. Now, the movie like Wrong Turn has them being inbred over a couple generations to become how they are. I think that if you're going to do that, it would actually have to, the children would start to be that way. So I could see somebody like Pluto being how they are even though I don't necessarily buy that he would have the super strength that he does. And in this, Pluto is played by Michael Bailey Smith. I just feel like the children would be altered because the genetics of their parents. I just don't necessarily know these older ones that we have here would be as weird looking as they are. Personal gripe here doesn't necessarily ruin the movie for me, though. And then we have an interesting dynamic with this family that's moving across the country. Big Bob is a former police detective, and Levine does a great job in that role. I think that Quinlan supports him well as the character of Ethel. Bird works as a you know different take on the Bobby character. And I like what D. Revan does as Brenda. She is more outspoken, but I think that her age and not wanting to be there really works. She gets attacked in the trailer in a heinous way, but the movie cuts away from it, so we actually don't see it. We just kind of see more of the after effects. And I think it's a satisfying change in her character for what she goes through till the end. It takes her through a few stages of acceptance as well. And I've already kind of went over a little bit about how I feel about Doug. And I think Stanford plays that well. And Shaw is fine as his wife. And then for the mutants, I've already said I don't really... I have a big issue with kind of how they look. I think that Robert Joy as the lizard character, I really like him. And it makes sense for how he plays the role. We have Sist, who is Greg Nicotero. I think he looks good. But with his age, he shouldn't be as deformed as he is here. Billy Drago is an interesting take on Papa Jupiter, but he's very forgettable. I know his look is very odd to begin with, so that all works, but I just think what they do in the Wes Craven version works a whole lot better. But I will say, I don't really necessarily like the change of the concept we get here, but the makeup is all good across you know everything that we get for that. I think the blood and gore and everything we get with the attacks is good. I have an issue with an odd zoom that happens with Big Bob, and I hated that. It did take me out of everything. There is some a bit of CGI that doesn't necessarily work for me. Aside from that, I think the cinematography is solid. As I said, I think the Wes Craven version is superior, which has taken me a few viewings of both of them to kind of come around to that idea. I think the practical effects were well done by Nicotero and Howard Berger. The backstory doesn't necessarily fit, but I feel like it, and it also runs a bit long, as I've already said. 
I just think that this is an above-average movie. Just lacking a few things for me to kind of go higher than that. But I did come up from the last time I've seen this, looking at my previous rating, as I give this a 7.5 out of 10. Then up next I have for you Wrong Turn 2, Dead End. This is directed by Joe Lynch. This comes from a screenplay from Turi Meyer and Alfredo Septian. And this is from characters by Alan B. McElroy. This stars Erica Learshin, Henry Rollins, and Texas Battle. This is a horror film from the United States that is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a group of reality show contestants find themselves fighting for their survival against a family of hideously deformed inbred cannibals who plan to ruthlessly butcher them all. Now this is the first time that I've watched this was in college. It was in my first apartment and I was excited because they made a follow-up as I thought the original was a solid little slasher film. I'll be honest, I didn't really care for this movie as it didn't capture what I thought the original did. It was fun, but it didn't live up. I have now given this a second watch as part of the Summer Challenge series for the podcast Under the Stairs for the 2000s, as well as October Horror Movie Challenges that I'm doing. Now to kind of just give you a little bit in to like fill things in for you, this movie starts off very similar to the original one where we have Kimberly, who is portrayed by Kimberly Caldwell, who's in a red Mustang, and she's driving through the woods of West Virginia. She is scolding her agent, who I didn't realize at the time was voiced by Patton Oswalt, for booking her in this gig. And it's a reality TV show, and she thinks she's a better actor than that. Now, she isn't paying attention, so she hits someone in the road. When she gets out to check on them, she finds out they're still alive, and they cut her in half vertically. And another one appears, and they take the pieces of this woman with them. And then the major premise of this movie is that Michael, who goes by the nickname M, who is Matthew Curry Holmes, is trying to make a reality survivor show in the middle of the woods. The premise is that the world has ended due to nuclear holocaust. They are given challenges and there are other things they have to do to, you know, survive in the game. And it is hosted by Dale Murphy, who is Henry Rollins, and he's a former military man. The contestants are Nina Pappas, who is Learshin who is a bit of a militant vegan. And then there's Jake Washington, who is Texas Battle. He's a former college football star. We have Amber, who is Daniela Alonzo, who is also former military. We have Jonesy Lewis, who is Steve Braun. He was on the X Games, and it sounded like he failed pretty hard on national television. We have Elena, who is Yan K. Crystal Lowe, who is a bit promiscuous and kind of like the pretty girl. Now, Kimberly was supposed to be the final member, but she doesn't show up, and obviously we know why. So M's girlfriend and producer of the show, Mara Stone, who is Alexa Palladino, takes her spot. Now, Dale also gives her a pep talk, seeing that there are the strength inside of her. Now, they go out in the woods in pairs to look for food, and they're randomly selected. And then it is here that we kind of see that M is trying to make it a little bit X-rated with Jake and Elena. And then we kind of get to meet the other characters as they go off, but then we see that they are being hunted by something dangerous in the woods, which are a bunch of mutants, very similar to what we got in the original. Now, that's where I want to leave the recap of this, because there's not a whole lot to the story, to be honest. Now, as I've already said, this is a movie that I wasn't that high on the first time that I saw it, but I'm much more positive now. And it is even more interesting having watched shows like Survivor, and this movie is not only poking fun at the show, but they legit call it out in the movie itself. I like the idea, though, of getting these, this group of people in the middle of nowhere. They can win a hundred grand, and that is reason enough to be there. It is funny on this is that Survivor, there's a lot of good-looking, half-naked people a lot, so it wouldn't shock me to see that M, you know, wanting to Elena to go over and above, like, how she is speaking, because, you know, that's how things sell on television. They're being a bit of a spin-off, so they're trying to make a name for themselves, so you got to sell what you can to the audience. 
I'll be honest, so I don't really like a whole lot of the characters. I'm not a fan of Nina, but I think Learshin is solid in her performance to get me to feel that way. I do love Rollins' take on Dale. He goes full Arnold Schwarzenegger like in The Predator when he's hunting these mutants. Jake brings me around as there's a bit of arrogance about him, but he's actually a good guy at heart. I really like Mara, and I feel bad for what she sees. And then there's Amber, who I thought was good. Jonesy is annoying, but that's how he's written. I think Braun plays that well. M is shady, and again, Holmes plays it that way, and I think that works. Lo is quite attractive, so seeing her nude is good. And then Caldwell is easy on the eyes for the small bit that she has in this movie. And I will have to give credit to this movie is that they're willing to do some things and kill some characters earlier than I was fully expecting, which if you can do that, that kind of gets some perks in my book. Now, I feel I should shift this over to the villains. We have Paul, who is portrayed by Ken Kurzinger. He brings imposing size, and I like the makeup for him. He looks a bit too normal, despite the horrible hair lip that they give him. Now, they don't go into fleshing out the other ones, though. I got Ma, who is Ashley Earl, and Sister, who is Rorley Teo, mixed up a lot. I think the makeup on all of them is good overall, but I feel they are just a little bit too similar for me. And I'm fine with brother and sister being the same because they are supposed to be twins. And then we also get a cameo by Three Finger, who in this one is Jeff Scrutton, which I did like. And what this is telling me is that this is an offshoot of the same family from the first one, but they're all, you know, part of the same crew. Something else this one does well in is kind of giving us a little bit more background information to these people is that the paper mill that is in the area, the chemicals from that is making them, you know, genetically be different. Now, I think that's kind of a cool thing because super strength isn't necessarily something you'd get from inbreeding outside of the fact that I do know people with mental disabilities tend to be a little bit stronger because they don't have the conscience to stop. But altering these ones with the chemicals, I like the idea, but it is a bit too on the nose where there is a drum outside of the mill. I think the effects for the most part are done practically and those look good. There is some CGI in this movie that doesn't hold up for me. Aside from that, the cinematography is fine. And I do like incorporating a bit of found footage with the cameras that are attached to them, you know, for the reality show aspect. So aside from that, I actually am coming in with a very similar score to the first one, which I do think is still better. But I think this one is just more fun and does some different things for it. So like I said, this is a fun slasher sequel to a more serious film. If you're into those type of movies, I would give this a viewing as I came in with an above average score here with a 6.5 out of 10. And then I have Rec 2 from 2009. This is co-directed between Huami Balaguerrero and Paco Plaza, and they both helped to write the screenplay along with Manu Diaz, and then Amelia Mora was the story editor. This stars Jonathan D. Meller, Manuel Velasco, and Oscar Zafra. There's a lot of distinctions here for the subgenres that this fall or the genres this falls into of action, adventure, fantasy, horror, mystery, sci-fi, and thriller. This comes from Spain. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis here being, in order to ascertain the current situation inside, a supposed medical officer and a geo team step into the quarantine and ill-fated apartment building. Now, this is a movie that I was late to see in the original, but since that first viewing last October, I've been intrigued to check out the other movies in the series now. When it appeared on the Summer Challenge list for the podcast Under the Stairs, I knew I had a reason to move it up my list, and this also fulfilled a few requirements for some of the October movie challenges that I'm working on. Now, what you kind of get from the synopsis here is that we're seeing the last images from the previous movie where Angela Vidal, who is Manuela Velasco, is in night vision, 
on the camera and then something pulls her into the darkness. Now, we end up shifting over to a vehicle where there is a group of, I guess they're called, they're a geo team in Spain, but they're like a SWAT team here in the United States. Now, their leader is Jefe, who is Zafra, and then his other two team members are Lara, who is Ariel Casa, and then Martos, who is Alejandro Casica, where the, and there's also a cameraman with them who goes by the name of Rosso, who is the person who's actually holding the camera, I believe, is Pablo Rosso, and then the voice-o is Rafa Parra. Now, I bring this up because they are going into the same apartment building from the first movie, and they're actually meeting up with a Dr. Owen, who is Meller, who is from the Ministry of Health here in Barcelona. Now, they're here to collect a sample of what is causing everything, and that is why they're going inside of the building that has been, at the moment, been sealed off. Now, I will say, going from here, there could be some spoilers here for the first film, so keep that in mind as I kind of you know delve into some other things here in a bit. But while they're inside, they also run into another group of teens that are Ori, who is Alex Balatri, and then he's with his friend Tito, who is Pao Pash, and then they convince his sister of Miri, of Andrea Ross, to follow, the, follow a firefighter and the father of Jennifer, who the father is Pet Molina and his daughter in this movie is Claudia Silva into the apartment building as well and then they end up getting sealed in. And this becomes where they have to get a sample of what is causing this infection here and they need to get the blood of the person who originated it but something ends up happening there where they actually have to find this person in order to take this blood. Now the first thing I really wanted to delve into here with this series is pretty unique for me is it kind of feels like this book that I read by Brian Keene called The Rising. That is taking the infected subgenre and making it supernatural by what is taking these people over is demons. Now, the first rec film doesn't reveal this, and this is what I was talking about being the spoiler until the end. Well, we're getting that pretty early on here. Dr. Owen is actually a priest, and by you know knowing by doing prayers and stuff, it hurts those that are possessed, but it also allows us to progress some aspects of the story as well, because we're building more on the mythology and everything that we got in the first one. Now, a lot of what I heard about this film is it's more of the same, but like I said, I like that we're actually, you know, dealing a little bit differently. We're building on the mythology, as I already said. This time we're following a unit of trained police officers. And it's kind of terrifying when they get attacked because, you know, they're trained more than most people are. So if they're being overcome, then, like, what does it mean for normal people? Then we also get a few different times where it shifts a point of view, which that worked for me. And something I really wanted to talk about here as well would be the found footage angle. It does make it problematic to see what is happening at the end of the first movie, though, making me question, well, how did they get to see that footage? Now, it is a bit better explained here that Dr. Owen requires proof of what they're doing here, and some of the cameras are mounted on the people, so it makes sense as to why they're always recording. And not only that, but they're also trying to keep a record here of everything that is happening, so that is why Rosso keeps to film, is that they need to have proof. Now, the teens get stuck, are also trying to, at first, use their footage to get rich, but then they're also trying to use that to leverage their survival. Like many of these found footage films, the acting doesn't really stand out, but as I tend to say, though, I prefer it when it feels more natural. Now, Melner is good as Dr. Owen, and then I would say that the, you know, Geo police officers, they're good. I thought that the teens were all fine for what they give us, and I have to give a shout-out to all those that played infected people. They were quite creepy. I think the effects in this movie look good. I think for the most part they went practical. I think there is a bit of CGI, but the way that looked, I was fine. I also give credit to the actors of Bayex and Javier Botet, as they're both creepy looking at this Medrios character that is the original Infected, and just how they look are just so creepy in this movie. And I'm pretty positive overall in this aspect. 
And the last thing I would really say is that I'm glad they don't have an actual soundtrack synced up to this. Uh, all we get to really hear is kind of anything that would be diegetic. I do think they do some interesting things with the voices of those that are possessed, so I'm you know, a fan of what they were working with there. But overall, I thought this was a good follow-up to what they did in the first one and you know, building on the mythology and everything like that. And I am kind of intrigued to see where 3 and 4 go. But I came in as a, I would say this is a good movie, and I would rate this as an 8 out of 10. And then I have for you Society from 1989. This is directed by Brian Usna, and it was written by Rick Fry and Woody Keith. This stars Billy Warlock, Conchetta Diagnosi, and Ben Slack. This is a comedy horror film from a co-production from Japan and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being an ordinary teenage boy discovers his family is part of a gruesome orgy cult for the social elite. Now, this is a film that I felt like I needed to see... You know, I feel like I might have saw the case at the video stores, but I couldn't be completely sure. When I got into listening to podcasts, this became a movie that would pop up and was still a blind spot for me. I needed to check out a few body horror films for an October movie challenge that I'm doing and figured this one, you know, I'd finally give it a go. Now, We're Fallen mostly is Billy Whitney, who is portrayed by Warlock. Now, we get this interesting scene in where he, you know, comes through a door and he's looking pretty spooked and we get to keep hearing these weird inaudible noises until his mother sees him and he is clutching a knife by their front door. And then we also see that Billy is seeing a Dr. Cleveland, who is Ben Slack, who is a psychiatrist. We kind of get the idea that Billy might be an unreliable narrator, and this is something the movie will play with quite a bit. And I think it's interesting here is that the opening credits are shown over some images in the background that are kind of hard to see, but we also see there's something a little bit weird going on with what they're showing us, and it's bathed in like a red light. And then this is where we're also getting the theme song, which is oddly catchy, and I kind of dig it. Now, Billy, his best friend is Milo, who is Evan Richards. And then his sister is Jenny, who is Patrice Jennings. And there's this weird moment where her ex-boyfriend of David Blanchard, who is Tim Bartell, he shows up, and she wants her brother to get rid of him. And she ends up being spooked by him being in her closet, and we get some kind of weird things going on here. Now, Jenny is coming out here in a society party that night. Now, their parents of Nan and Jim, who Jim is portrayed by Charles Lucia, are excited for. Now, Billy won't be attending because he has a basketball game. And we get kind of this moment here where the parents might like Jenny more than they like Billy. But then again, we don't necessarily know if this is actually what's happening here. Billy is up for class president, and he's going up against a guy named Petrie, who is portrayed by Brian Bremer who's also part of society. And then there's also in the front row, Ted Ferguson, who is Ben Meyerson, and his friend of Clarissa Carlin, who is Devin DeVasquez. Now they're also part of society and they're trying to distract him because they're, at least he's more friends with Petrie. Now there's all this type of stuff here going on where Billy gets the idea from something that Blanchard plays him that his family might be doing something quite weird and it might be involving, you know, sex between his sister and his parents. But Every time he tries to find this evidence, things aren't as it seems when other people start to listen to it. So it makes you wonder if he's crazy or not. But obviously this movie has a lot of social you know, relevance today and social commentary about how the rich pretty much leech off of the poor. And in this one, it's a lot more literal than that. But this is more of like how corporations work off of their smallest employees who make them all the money and everything. But they don't you know, trickle down the sort of money and everything like that which is kind of an ironic thing that a lot of people believe that tax breaks for the rich will end up helping the poor i don't necessarily want to get too political here but i mean i don't believe that's the case and this movie is really playing on that fact 
This movie I wouldn't, I know it's listed as a comedy, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's a laugh out loud type of movie. This is much more satirical in nature as we just have some odd things that kind of play out here. One of them especially is this Mrs. Carlin who is portrayed by Pamela Matheson. I wasn't sure if this was a male or female at first, so I'm not going to lie that that was kind of something that, you know, I was curious about. I've kind of already talked a little bit about the unreliable narrator. There are things that Billy thinks he hears or sees, and then, but he's the only one. Dr. Cleveland, Nan, Jim, Jenny, and whoever he ever always reaches out to always convince him that it's all in his head. And I like that's something that we're playing with here until the climax. Thought the acting was fine across the board. No one really stood out to me. I do feel like there's a little bit of overacting in this movie, but I think a lot of that goes back to the satirical nature. And we also get to see some nudity with DeVasquez and some other people. And we also get to see Jennings pretty much nude. I don't actually think we ever get to see anything there, but just something to also keep in mind. And they're both attractive as well. The effects, though, are amazing in this movie. When I saw the name Screaming Mad George in the credits, I was pretty excited because I know what he can do. I did read up a little bit about this movie that a lot of things that were done in here were based off what they could do with effects. So I think that was a cool thing that they're playing with as well. And then during the climax, they use this red light to kind of focus on some of the wild things that we get to see near the end. Which, if you don't know coming into this, this movie from the synopsis and kind of some of the things that you might kind of hear might sound almost like a slasher or almost like the purge you know well before they ever made that but this definitely is a creature type weird thing that you get once you finally get to see everything that's going down so this is one that like i said i don't think it's a great movie i'm glad i finally saw it it's not as bad as i had it pictured in my head so that's kind of an interesting there it does have some good social commentary and everything like that but i came in as an above average movie here with a 7.5 out of 10 and up next is saw 2 from 2005 this is directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Lee Winnell. This stars Donnie Wahlberg, Beverly Mitchell, and Frankie G. This is a horror mystery from a co-production of the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a detective and his team must rescue eight people trapped in a factory by the twisted serial killer known as Jigsaw. Now, this is a movie that I made sure that I saw in the theaters when it first came out because of how much I liked the original one. After that first viewing, I actually enjoyed it more than the original and held this thought for a while. My whole thought process is that they had a bigger budget here and that they took what they did in the original one and then just kind of amplified everything there. But I don't think I had seen this since getting it back on DVD in college. This is the first time that I'm watching it with a critical eye for an October movie challenge where I needed to watch part twos of franchises. And... This one, we're getting a cold open here with a guy in a trap. It's very similar to the reverse bear trap, but this one is more like a Venus flytrap where it's going to close on him and has nails. And we get to actually learn that he's an informant. And then this plays into the fact that he's an informant for a detective, Eric Matthews, who's portrayed by Wahlberg. Now, he has to collect his son, Daniel, who is Eric Kudson, from police custody. Daniel is acting out because his parents are going through a divorce and he's angry. Now the two of them get into a fight where Daniel states he wants to go back with his mother and Eric tells him to go. He then worries because he can't find his son. Now Matthews gets called to a crime scene by Carrie who is Dina Meyer. She's dedicated a lot of her time to stopping Jigsaw. So the reason that Matthews is called though is the guy there is his informant as I said and there's a message left for him on the ceiling to look deeper. Now we get to learn as Matthews and Carrie get into a kind of shouting match and we learn that he is being investigated by internal affairs and then that night he dreams of the crime scene and he ends up looking deeper into it and gets a flash of where they can think they can find Jigsaw. 
Now a unit is thrown together with Rig, who is Lyric Bent, and his team. They go to an old factory, and sooner they come to the right place. There's a trap that's set up that decimates quite a few members of this team, but upstairs they find John Kramer, who of course is Jigsaw. Now he is dying as he has cancer, he doesn't seem to have long to live, but he wants to play a game with Matthews and he gets his leverage when he shows what's at stake. And that is that there is a room of monitors behind him, and this is where there are eight people that are being held. It's actually more of a large decrepit house and not necessarily a factory, but the people that wake up there are Xavier, who is Frankie G, Jonas, who is Glenn Palmer, Addison, who is Emmanuel Vierga, and then we have Laura, who is Beverly Mitchell, Obi, who is Timothy Bird, as well as Daniel, and even Amanda, who is Shawnee Smith from the original movie. Now, there's another guy here, but I'm not sure what his name is, and he doesn't really seem to last long. But they have this poison gas that is circling through the place, and that they have two hours to find an antidote to it. And if they can do that, once the door's open in three hours, they will all survive, whoever, you know, has taken the antidote. But then, to cap this off, though, for my recap, is Matthews is told that his son is in a safe place and all he has to do is sit there and talk with him. Matthews is a hothead and is trying to do everything that he can to figure out where his son is before it is too late. Now, one of the big things that I like about the sequel here is that they take what the original one does and build on it to make it bigger, and that's what I feel like you need to do with a sequel. We have more people involved, and technically we have two games going on that are interconnected. Now, what I love about the games here are that if you just listen to what Jigsaw says, for the most part, and then just stay calm, you can end up winning the game. Now, the first guy has the first game has a bit rough here that in order to win, he really has to, you know, cut into himself, which can be a difficult thing to do. As for the larger game in this house, it would be if they just worked together. They could actually get through this, but then a lot of problems are created by Xavier as he's a hothead and kind of acts like a bull in a china shop for the most part. Now, they would, he would just listen to Amanda and Jonas. The first guy doesn't die. And then Xavier just becomes more and more violent as, you know, he's bullheaded and won't listen to anybody else. But he ends up, and some of the other people start to, as they get annoyed with each other, is that they make it into an individual game, but if they just work together, they could survive. My original point here works for Matthews and his game as well. Carrie tries to convince him that if he just listens to what Jigsaw is saying, he can get through it, but he has anger issues, and that blinds him, you know, with seeing red. I do have a little bit of an issue here with this game, though, that Jamie had brought up that I feel like some of these people are being punished here and as to why they're connected for things that they didn't necessarily do. So I almost feel like it's not right. Now, they all do seem to be somewhat criminals or at least do bad things that Jigsaw knows about. But I do think this is a little bit problematic to be punished for some of these things, in my opinion. I do think that the effects, for the most part, are really good. The different kind of traps that are set up are pretty solid to me there's one that's a razor blade game that i think i figured out how to beat by myself but then if the characters are working together they could actually defeat it pretty easily the character that ends up getting caught in this one though is exhausted and you know the poison at that point is really wearing on them so i could see why they would do what they did there's one with fire that i think wouldn't be fun to do but i think it'd be pretty easy to kind of beat if they just kind of act fast the worst one and the one that makes me cringe the most is some dirty needles in a pit. And this is actually supposed to be Xavier's challenge, but he throws someone else in because he's an asshole. I think the acting for this part, for this movie is pretty good for the most part. I really see Bell as, you know, John Kramer and Jigsaw in my eyes. He just embodies it with his look, and I believe he could be the mastermind that he is. I also think it's interesting here is that we see weakness that he has cancer, and it makes you start to feel bad for him, especially when, like, Matthew starts to attack him. It's just odd for the things that he does, though, as he is the villain here, and he's put he doesn't have any place to be putting his people to punish them as he is, so it's kind of an interesting little duality that we're playing with there. 
Smith is solid, and I like the character arc for her story. Wahlberg is great job as this Matthews, you know, the detective. He just has this look of a dirty, rough cop that has fallen apart. Cudson was fine. Frankie G is a character that I hated with how mean he is. But I can't, you know, I have to give him credit for the reaction that he's getting out of me. Plummer was fine along with Vierga, Mitchell, Bird, Meyer, and Bent. None of them really stand out to me as being great, but the ladies are pretty nice to look at until, you know, things start to fall apart. So, like I said, I'm not as high on this movie as I was originally. I do think it's still really good, and I think it's a worthy successor. I think there's some problematic things that I have with it, so it is a step back from the original. And there's also, I forgot to bring up, that there's this green filter when they're showing things inside the house that I don't necessarily care for. So I did take, you know, a little bit off for that. The soundtrack was fine. I do like playing the theme right there at the end. But as I said, this is an above average movie that I'm coming in as well with a 7.5 out of 10. And then I have for you Shivers from 1975. This is written and directed by David Cronenberg. This stars Paul Hampton, Joe Silver, and Lynn Lowry. This is a horror sci-fi film from Canada. This is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being the residents of a suburban high-rise apartment building are being infected by a strain of parasites that turn them into mindless, sex-crazed fiends out to infect others by the slightest sexual contact. Now, this is a movie that I remember when my dad got on VHS, and the case always intrigued me. I feel like he might have said something to me about not watching it, but I can't confirm that, and he wouldn't remember if I asked him now. For whatever reason, I never saw it until this, till today. It had been on a list of films for me, you know, to check out when I got into podcasts. And then finally, when I needed another body horror movie for an October movie challenge, I decided to give this one a go. Then just kind of fill everything in here. We get an interesting way to start this movie off with stock footage of an apartment building that has all the amenities and then some. This is being relayed by Merrick, who is Ronald Mildalzik. And he's pitching this to a couple of Chrysamir, who is Vlasta Vranen and Benda, who is Sylvie Du Bois, who are looking for a place to live. And then this is being interestingly synced up with a Annabelle, who is Kathy Graham, who is trying to keep Emile Hobbs in a room, and he is portrayed by Fred Dolderlin. He breaks out and then kills her, and we don't know why this is happening, but he does an autopsy of sorts on her on her dining room table. He then kills himself after he is finished. From here we get to meet a Nicholas Tudor, who is Alan Coleman. He is married to Janine, who is Susan Petrie. But it seems to me that there are some issues there. Nick is worried about something moving around in his stomach. And I mean, I would be too if I, you know, pulled up in the mirror and saw it. And it is quite tender. Janine tries to see what is wrong with him, but he hides it from her. And then we get to see him go up to Annabelle's apartment, finds her dead, and then flees. And then it seems like he wasn't doing to work because his secretary seems shocked and starts asking him questions. Now, Janine goes to seek solace with Betts, who is the amazing Barbara Steele, which involves them drinking. And then also in this apartment building is a medical clinic. The doctor there is Roger St. Luke, who is Hampton. And then his nurse is Forsyth, who is Lowry. They treat an older man who has something very similar to Nick. And then Janine also comes out asking the doctor to check on her husband later. And this is pretty much done in secret. And then it appears that Hobbs has done some experiments to create this weird parasite that looks like a slug, but whenever it gets latched onto somebody, the chemicals that it does turns people into sex-crazed, zombie-like creatures that want to infect others, like the synopsis stated. So just to give a little bit more backstory that I left out of the recap, there's a doctor of Rolo who is portrayed by Silver that he learns from research 
that he is reading from Hobbes about why he created this. And there's also a connection between Hobbes and Annabelle. And then it takes it even farther to learn actually how it gets spread through this apartment building. I didn't catch on to this at first, but it gets revealed that Nick is actually having an affair with Annabelle. And then being that she is 19 years old, it kind of makes sense. I don't like it, but I get it. But I think the setting to this place is pretty interesting. I've never lived into an apartment building like this, but this place is pretty self-sufficient. Something that really struck me is that the synopsis stated suburb. I know that it is considered by society that those living in suburbs are supposed to have their lives together. So having them become infected with this parasite that makes them into sex craves like zombies is interesting to me. This would be the taboo just to live out your fantasies like someone that they would actually look down on. I did also read some trivia that writer-director Cronenberg didn't want to live a normal life doing a normal job, so I can see that him looking down on people a bit through this commentary. Now this is an interesting choice to have this parasite look like a slug here. I like the idea that this parasite though takes them over and then makes them sexually charged infected zombie-like people like I keep saying. My problem though is that the movie loses sight of the sexual aspects for a good stretch. I understand why though is that this would be a hard line to tiptoe by going this route. We really can't have 87 minutes of people trying to rape each other so I can understand why the movie decides to do the things that it does. I do like though that the movie does kind of play with some taboo type things like we do have Betts and Janine kind of have a little moment there together. So I think it's kind of cool to play with, you know, non-traditional type relationships. I did also notice some inconsistencies with the infection as well. Cronenberg did come out and say that the disease he created, so it's either intentional or his fault. I can buy that. The parasite when it is infecting can manifest people in different ways, which how things end, it really does bring this full circle, and I really didn't have any issues after that. And the ending is also quite nihilistic, which I tend to be a fan of. And I also think that infections affect people differently, so I can also buy it that way. To circle around to a point that I was trying to make is that the parasite looking like a slug I think is a bit of a misstep. It gives the people a bit of a chance to fight it off, and I get that allows the effects to be creepy. I would have, I mean, I think it would have worked better for me if you can't actually see it, so it's almost more like a real virus or something like that. But I mean, making it a parasite, I can also understand why they would do that. I do think that most of the effects that we get in this movie are good, and the most of them are actually, like, the body horror stuff is quite creepy to me. If anything, it doesn't necessarily work. It is the look of the slugs. I know Cronenberg said he wished he had CGI so he could have done something more with it. I'm glad that he did it practically, at least, and the cinematography is well done, as there are some truly creepy shots. I don't really think anybody in the acting really stood out, but it is solid overall. Hampton I wasn't a big fan of early on. He just has this weird look on his face, and he was just a bit off for me. I do like him as the movie does go on, as I said. Silver is interesting to fill in the backstory for this movie. Lowry is looking good, and we get to see her nude, so there's that. Coleman is a jerk, and he also gives off a creepy vibe. I like seeing Steele, as I'm always a fan of her, and Petri was fine. I would say the rest of the cast round this out for what was needed. And then the briefly last thing to go over here would be the soundtrack. I saw that Ivan Reitman was the, was the supervisor here. He wasn't necessarily happy with the soundtrack, but, I mean, fairly early on, there's almost this song that sounds like a synth wave. That worked for me because it had a creepy vibe. Other than that, there was another time where it stood out, but I don't really notice the soundtrack, but they do well with noises off screen, you know, with screaming and yelling and things to that effect. So I'm not overly as high on this movie as some people are. I do think there's some really good aspects and some good social commentary here. I like the concept, and I mean, if you're looking for nudity, this does give you a good bit of that. 
I'm glad that they did the effects practically, but I would say this is an above average movie that I came in with a 7 out of 10, and I would recommend this though if you're into this subgenre or want to see all the Cronenberg films as well. And that is all I have for you this week, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Defilers of the dead. Vicious violators of the innocent. The fiendish ghouls. Two of history's most diabolic demons. Selling cadavers and corpses to the sinister Dr. Knox for his forbidden experiments. We heard you like them fresh, sir. This one's as fresh as a new-cut cabbage. Excellent. I'll give you seven guineas. One, two... The Fiendish Ghouls. No one was safe from the bloodlust of these depraved grave robbers, these sadistic murderers. You killed shock, terror upon terror, shatter the screen in The Fiendish Ghoul. And for my first review here for the week, it is going to be The Flesh and the Fiends from 1960. This is directed by John Gillian, who also came up with the original story and co-wrote the screenplay with Leon Griffiths. This movie stars Peter Cushing, June Laverick, and Donald Pleasance, and it is also featuring George Rose, Renee Houston, Dermot Walsh, Billy Whitelaw, John Kearney, Melvin Hayes, June Powell, Andrew Falds, Philip Lieber, George Woodbridge, Gerard Green, and Esma Cannon. This is a crime drama horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.9 on IMDb, nice, and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being in 1828 Scotland, Edinburgh surgeon Dr. Knox does medical research on cadavers he buys from murderers Burke and Hare without questioning the unethical procurement methods. Now this is a movie that I had never heard of, and I believe I heard it on, about it on the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, which if that's not the case, I do apologize for you know the misinformation there, but that's where I thought I'd, they did an episode on this back in the day. It is one that I added to my list of things to check out, and it periodically would pop up. 
I didn't realize until sitting down to watch this that it featured Peter Cushing and some early work from Donald Pleasance. I did realize, though, that this was, you know, following the real events of the duo of Burke and Hare. Now, before I get into, you know, kind of what the movie, you know, has going for it, let me just do a little bit of some notes about some of the key players here. Director and writer John Gilling had a solid career in film. He was better known as a writer, though, but not by a lot. He directed 44 movies. The first in horror was Vampire Over London from 1952. He then did The Gamma People in 56 before doing this movie. And then from there, he would do The Shadow of the Cat, Blood Beast from Outer Space, The Plague of Zombies, The Reptile, The Mummy Shroud, and Curse of the Devil over the next couple decades. And I believe The Mummy Shroud is actually a Hammer production, but I could be wrong there. For writing, he has 57 credits, with the first being Horror Maniacs from 1948, as well as House of Darkness from the same year. The Gamma People, he did double duty, much like he did, you know, the writing and directing for The Flesh and the Fiends. He wrote the screenplay for The Gorgon in 1964, as also writing The Mummy Shroud's screenplay, which is another one that he also directed as well. His last credits in genre were coming up with the original story for Trog, which I have seen, and he uncredited writing for the last horror film that he directed with The Cross of the Devil. Leon Griffiths didn't have a long career. He was has 32 writing credits, and this is the only one that is a horror film that he wrote. He did have two episodes of Out of This World that he wrote the screenplay for, as well as adapting stories for two episodes of Out of the Unknown. Now we have two legends starring in this movie, as I've said. We have Peter Cushing, who has 130 acting credits. The first was The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957, and that same year he did The Abominable Snowman. He would go on to play, you know, countless films from then until 1984, where he did the Sherlock Holmes and the Masks of Death as the titular character. To name some of the movies that I've seen that he would have been in would have been Star Wars A New Hope, the Curse of Frankenstein, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, Madhouse, Horror of Dracula, Asylum, The Revenge of Frankenstein, and I, Monster. Now, this is also has June Laverick. She's only in 14 things as an actress, and this is the only one in genre. And then, of course, we have the other legend of Donald Pleasance. He was in 238 works as an actor, with this being his first film in genre while also appearing in Circus of Horrors and The Hands of Orlock from the same year, which is pretty impressive to be in three movies at the same time. He worked in countless movies in the genre until Fatal Frames in 1996, which does come out posthumously for him. We all know him from Halloween and its many sequels, as well as Dario Argento's Phenomena. I've also seen him in Dracula from 1979 with Frank Lagella as the Count as well. Now to kind of just go through the story a little bit for this movie, we actually start with learning of, you know, the methods of what some people would do for money. Medical schools needed bodies to teach students how to perform autopsies on and how to do just surgeries in general because it's better, you know, to do a little bit of hands-on practice. The problem that I'm gathering is that unless you donated your body to science, most people didn't, so they didn't have bodies to work on in class. That is why in the beginning we see a couple of grave robbers digging up a corpse and bringing it to Dr. Robert Knox's school, and Knox is portrayed by Cushing. He doesn't pay them as much as they were hoping, and so there's a little bit of back and forth there. But since it had been in the ground for some time, they're not overly happy about you know how everything goes down. But it seems like he's willing to give them a little bit more money, but he's only giving them half now, and the other half is going to be paid to the bar that they go to. Also at the school is his associate of Dr. Jeffrey Mitchell, who is Dermot Walsh. 
he seems to be a bit of a more practical guy and less rough around the edges than his superior here. I say this as Dr. Knox is willing to, you know, blur the lines of legality and will challenge his peers. And we get to see this throughout the movie as well. There's a bit of a God complex here that he does, you know, feel superior to them as well. It appears that Dr. Knox, though, is a good teacher and really wants to help his students. We see this in the form of Chris Jackson, who is John Kearney. The two of them talk about something from the lecture where we learn that Chris is struggling in classes. He's asking him if he's going to, you know, end up failing and everything and if his teacher will tell him or not. He wants to know what can be done to, you know, kind of prevent this, but Dr. Knox won't coddle him. It does appear that Chris is struggling to make, make ends meet, which could be part of the problem with his grades. Dr. Knox offers him a position that will, you know, help around the school where he will work alongside Dr. Mitchell and another associate, you know, to receive the bodies that they're using in for the lectures and everything like that to help, you know, make a little bit more cash on the side. One of Chris's tasks is to go to the local pub where they're going to pay for the drinks of the grave robbers that we saw earlier. It is a rough place and Chris protects the honor of a woman there by the name of Mary Patterson who is portrayed by Billy Whitelaw. When he's attacked in the streets, she takes him home to a less savory place that I believe is where she's, you know, sleeping with people for money as she, I think she's a part-time prostitute. But Chris falls in love almost immediately and wants to court her. She agrees after she realizes that he is serious and is not, you know, just pulling her chain. Now, also at this bar that night are the duo of William Hare and William Burke. Now, Burke is portrayed by George Rose, where William Hare is portrayed by Pleasance. They see the grave robbers and the money that they're flaunting. They don't really seem like they want to do actual hard work. But when they go back to Burke's place, they learn that an elderly resident passed away. Now, his wife of Helen Burke, who is Renee Houston, uses their house, you know, to board residents as a little way to help, you know, make a little extra money. And Burke is upset that this man owed him money. Hare sends Helen on an errand, and he's come up with a plan. They take the body to Dr. Knox, and they're rewarded handsomely. And the duo decides to pick off others in the area to live like kings, and they're paid well for their services. And this is where it kind of gets a little bit dicey, where Dr. Knox is kind of doing some things that are a little bit shady and overlooking some things. Now that's where I want to leave my recap of this movie, as I feel that gives enough information of what is you know, needed to know. This movie is quite interesting in that Burke and Hare were real people. I've watched a documentary episode of Lore on these two, as well as I've seen some other movies that are loosely based on their lives. And from all accounts, they did this, they did some pretty horrible things, but they're also living in a society where they didn't have a whole lot of options either. Not to excuse murder, but you have to sometimes you know do what you can to survive. And I think that's a little bit of what they're doing here. But they're also, you know, doing some horrible things as well. The first thing I really wanted to delve into here with, with society is that they're living in. The year given and how they're living, this is, you know, Victorian Scotland. I find this to be an interesting place to set it since most of the time you'll focus more in London. Being that we're in Edinburgh, I know that this is a large city, but there's also some isolation in having it in Scotland. It seems still like a tight-knit community, which we could get to see when the mob mentality comes into play later on. Next, I want to take this to Dr. Knox. He's a good character from everything that I can see. He's being handcuffed, though, by the society that they're living in. There is a question, you know, being tossed around to him about why Parliament doesn't approve using bodies for their research, and he scoffs at the idea. Religion really seems to be a big reason there. Dr. Knox is an atheist at the start of the movie for sure, because he's a man of science. He ruffles the feathers of his peers, and this comes into play later when facing you know, his fall from grace. 
there is a great scene where he wrote an article calling one of them a murderer for malpractice, and Dr. Mitchell tries to get Dr. Knox to back down a bit. He knows what Dr. Knox is doing, but it could be his downfall if his, you know, enemies discover the truth of what he's doing with these nefarious characters. Dr. Knox isn't wrong, though. He doesn't care in his suspicions. They're doing, you know, the same thing, just he's not working with them, so he can't, you know, prove it. There is a change in his character near the end that I did like. I don't necessarily agree with what he goes through there, though. Now, I've leaned in this a little bit already, but there's the characters of Burke and Hare. I don't know if Hare was as villainous as Pleasant plays it, but I think it's an interesting take on that character. They don't want to rob graves, and what that was mentioned when you know they see the grave robbers living it up. This plays into you know the matter of circumstance that they arrive home that morning after a night out to find that somebody has passed away in the boarding house. Hare is one behind this where I believe Burke is more of just kind of like the muscle where Hare would be the brains. I've said that I can't put the entire fault on them. They're poor with little means or circumstance. They take advantage of this at first, you know, with a natural death that happened. The problem then becomes they get a taste for it and see how much money they make. So they resort to murder as the bodies net more money being fresh. My issue really comes, though, that they start to flaunt their money and use it to create more victims. It really is an interesting look at capitalism and greed for sure. And the last thing here is the dynamic between Chris and Mary. He seems like a good guy who is a bit naive. He finds her attractive and she sees him as, you know, above her in society. This becomes an issue is that Dr. Knox states that he doesn't think that Chris's head is in his studying and seeing him with Mary, that makes a lot of sense. This also helps a spark to the climax as well. There is a scene where Dr. Mitchell, when he's out with Dr. Knox's niece of Martha, who is Laverick, now Mary knows that she's not as educated and embarrassed as Chris. The other two just kind of ignore it and try to allow them to go on their way. Mary yells at Chris, who has to, you know, butter her up to get back on her good side. And then this is an issue that will grow as things go on, where he doesn't want her to kind of turn tricks anymore and, you know, to be more like a lady, where she doesn't really know how to do that. And, you know, she just goes back to having fun and doing whatever she can in those respects. I've already said a bit about the acting, but Cushing is a legend, and I like to see Pleasance in a different role than what I'm used to. Both do an excellent job in bringing these characters to life. Laverick is fine in her smaller role, where I would say that Whitelaw actually does much better despite lower billing. Rose is solid in support of hair. Houston, Walsh, and the rest of the cast just round this movie out for what was needed as well. Really the last thing to go over here would be the effects. The movie is in black and white, so that does help to hide things. It really isn't that type of movie though either. There is a great scene where Dr. Mitchell and Hare go back and forth about a bruise on a cadaver's forehead. Aside from that, the way that they kill people is realistic as they want to make it look like natural causes if able because especially when Dr. Mitchell calls them out. The cinematography is fine aside from that in my opinion. And then before I close this review out of the movie, I really just want to give some trivia that I found. The film is an adaptation of a story of real-life killers William Burke and William Hare, who around 1827 in Edinburgh, Scotland, did provide more than a dozen fresh corpses to the anatomist Dr. Knox. The DVD release contains the UK version and the European version, which does include topless women, which I ended up watching this on YouTube, and they did not have any of that included, so it must be the cut without that clearly. Burke was hanged and his corpse was dissected and his skeleton displayed at the Anatomical Museum of Edinburgh Medical School where as of 2020 it still remains. The film is based on the true case of Burke and Hare who murdered people and sold their bodies for anatomical research. 
The murders raised public awareness for the need of bodies for medical research and contributed to the passing of the Anatomy Act of 1832. So there was at least something good that came about to help with society. The death metal band Exhumed based their 2017 album Death Revenge off this film according to Ross Sewage and by extension the Heron Burke murders. Peter Cushing and Donald Pleasance would co-star in Devil's Men 17 years after this film was out. So that was all of the trivia there that I really wanted to give and then all I wanted to delve into this movie. The true story of Burke and Hare is both creepy and an interesting one to see play out. I like the changes that are made here with the acting. Pleasance does great in making Hare into such a villain and the things he's willing to do with Burke as, you know, more of the muscle. There's a good duality though with Dr. Knox and his reputation on the other side as well as Cushing has an amazing performance. I like to see how things play out and where it ends up. There aren't a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them, and the cinematography was good. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, but it also doesn't necessarily stand out either. I would rate this as a good movie for sure, but I will warn you this is from 1960, and it is in black and white, so if that's an issue, I would avoid this. But if you're interested in the story, I would say give this a viewing, and I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. But what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. You have a very special nature. One we've worked hard together to unlock. Pull me out. The results are normal. Anything you want to flag? No. No, I'm fine. Mom! How was your trip? Dull. Extraordinarily dull. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? What do you mean? I'm in place. Can I help you? Finish this. What are you doing? I can't pull the trigger. I need to know. I need to know what she's done to me. It's become a danger. Where is she? Come out or I'll do it! Sometimes, that small thought is all it takes to lose control. For my second featured review here, I have Possessor Uncut. This comes up from 2020, and the original title was just Possessor, so I'm not sure if there was kind of a cut version they were peddling at first, but this is, of course, you know, in the title. This is written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg. This stars Andrea Riseborough, Christopher Abbott, and Jennifer Jason Lee. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from a co-production of the United Kingdom and Canada. 
this is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Possessor follows an agent who works for a secretive organization that uses brain implant technology to inhabit other people's bodies, ultimately driving them to commit assassinations for high-paying clients. Now, this is a movie that its trailer was being shown at the Gateway Film Center before some of the movies that I was going to see there. I caught the name of it and that it stars Riseborough and was written and directed by Cronenberg. I've seen a couple of his films, and I'll get into literally just a couple of them, and enjoyed what I had seen that he had been doing. And Riseborough has been in quite a few as well, it feels like, you know, as of recently. And aside from that, I came in pretty blind, to be honest. And I didn't even actually know what the synopsis was until I, you know, end up reading everything after the fact. But just to kind of give a little bit of background information before I delve into the movie itself, director and writer Brandon Cronenberg is, of course, the son of David. I was shocked to see that he's directed nine projects. That's not the shocking part, but only two of them have been in the horror genre, which are Antiviral and this, which I have seen both now. He has also wrote both of these, and these are the only two credits in the genre there as well. Riseboro, as I said, has been popping up a lot lately. She has been in 47 credits as an actress, four of which are in horror. Her first was Hidden from 2015. I haven't seen that one, but of course she was the titular character Mandy Bloom from Mandy in 2018 with you know Nick Cage. She was in the Grudge remake from this year, and then this movie. The last three, you know, I have seen. Now, I've also seen her in the movie Nocturnal Animals, Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. She was in a movie called Disconnect from 2012 that I've seen. I don't really remember a whole lot about that. She was in the sci-fi movie Oblivion, and then a movie, I think this was kind of like a romantic comedy, or at least like a dramedy or something like that, or a romance drama, I don't really know offhand. I think one of my exes made me watch it with them, of W.E., then Christopher Abbott, I recognize, but I wasn't really familiar of where. I knew one of them, though, and I'll get into that here in a second. He has 34 acting credits, and all of them fall into the horror genre that features are It Comes at Night, Piercing, and Now This. He was also in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, so I can say that everything I've seen him in, I do find him to be quite talented at what he does. And that last one there, of all the M names, I kind of put that in horror adjacent because we're dealing with like a cult and everything and it's been a while since I've seen that but I remember really liking it when I took that home from Family Video. And then the final star here that I'm going to kind of go over is Jennifer Jason Lee. Now this is an actress that started out a while ago and is still working. She has 99 acting credits to her name. Her first was Eyes of a Stranger in 1981 in the horror genre and then she was in Heart of Midnight from 88. And then I saw her in the TV movie Buried Alive from 1990. That was an interesting little movie that stars Tim Matheson. And then she was also in David Cronenberg's Existence, which is kind of interesting that his son, you know, directed this movie. And then she was in two episodes of Todd McFarlane's Spawn before coming back to the genre in 2016 with a movie called Morgan. I haven't seen that one. And from there, she has done Amityville, The Awakening, Annihilation, and then this. And I have seen all of those. And then some other roles that I kind of noticed that she was in was The Hateful Eight, which I have seen that, Dolores Claiborne, which I have also seen, and then of course she was in you know, Fast Times at Ridgemount High and The Hitcher. And I was surprised that The Hitcher did not pull up on horror movies, but I guess according to IMDb, they don't consider that to be one. So with this movie here of Possessor, we start off with Holly, who is portrayed by Gabrielle Graham. Now she's sticking something in the top of her head, and it's kind of like if you're going to plug in like the a guitar to an amp, it kind of looks like that, just a little bit sharper. 
and then it is connected to something with an older looking dial and whatever it is it is hurting her as she turns it up she then goes off to what i'm assuming is work she focuses in on a water fountain but the water is moving backwards like going against gravity coming up and this is something that has some significance you know later on in the movie we have Catherine, who is Haneke Talbot. She calls out to her to see, you know, what is taking her so long. She then goes into work, as I said, and heads directly to Elio, who is Matthew Garlic. She doesn't waste any time in stabbing him in the neck and then repeatedly until he dies. A pistol is taken from her purse and there is some hesitation to kill herself, where a policeman ends up shooting her as well. We then figure out everything that is going on here, and it takes us to... Tazia Voss, who is Riseboro. She is answering questions about items being taken from a box by Gerder, who is Lee. This really seems to be a cognitive test. Tazia does raise some concerns, but everything from the tests that have been ran on her seem to be checking out as normal. They are working as a group of assassins. Now, as the synopsis stated, this seemed a lot like Assassin's Creed to me. I've not seen the movie, like the live action one that they did. I have played a lot of the earlier video games. And it really gets that vibe where I wonder if that's something that was borrowed from here where, you know, instead of sending him in the past to take over these bodies, they're taking over other bodies in our present day, controlling them and using them to kill assets. Tajia is the best in the business currently, but her concerns make Gerder question her. And this is something I didn't even realize until I was, you know, writing everything. I kind of forgot it after I got out of the theater was the fact that... She and her husband are estranged, which I'll get into that here in a little bit, but she says something to her boss about they've been talking, and Gerder brings up the question of weren't they separated and everything like that, because she's questioning, you know, her cognitive state, and then Tazia pretty much lays out that they've been, you know, reconciling a bit and figuring things out. But the big thing here that Gerder is worried about is they have the biggest job that they have ever had coming up and that they're, she's needed. Tazia has an interesting scene here from there where she is standing outside looking at an apartment or like a condo and she's using a vape and then she's practicing what she will say over and over again and then we see that the reason is that as i've said she's estranged from her husband who is michael portrayed by ross of sutherland and then her son of ira who is gage graham arbanoth this is brought up during her tests where it was thought, you know, they're no longer together, but appears that they are working things out, as I said. It seems that Tazia left, probably due to the nature of her work, where Michael wants her to move back in, and she is breaking down mentally, though. So I think this is a kind of cool thing, is at first I thought that, you know, they had some issues that they couldn't reconcile, but it really seems like she is worried about some of the things that she's doing and the effects it's having on her, and that is why, you know, she is not there with them. Now, despite everything she's going through mentally, she decides to tell Gerder that she is in for the next job. It seems that Reed, who is Christopher Jacot, wants to take over his father's business. In order to do so, his father is John Parse, who is Sean Bean, needs to be eliminated along with his daughter of Ava, who is Tumpets Middleton. Now, her boyfriend is Colin Tate, portrayed by Christopher Abbott is the person that they're looking to take over his body and they want it to seem like he's acting differently before things happen and then become the scapegoat. If they pull this off, they will control the business through Reed and this could be, you know, a lot of money and a lot coming their way. Things become problematic though as she goes, Colin is breaking the control that Tasia has over him once she, you know, is in his brain. She thinks it will be fine and kind of, I think, is lying to her boss a little bit when she's checking in. But when it comes time to act, the worst thing possible happens and it becomes a battle to gain control so she can make a clean break mentally 
or if she doesn't, the longer she's in there, their minds start to completely melt together, causing disastrous things for both parties and their lives. And this is where really kind of a lot of this tension and stress come from in this movie. So that's where I want to leave the recap, as that gets you up to speed without really getting too much into spoilers there. Now, I don't think I'm going to do a spoiler section, just because this movie is so new, and I do really want people to watch this. But where I want to start from my analysis is that it's fitting that Cronenberg did this movie, because while I'm watching this, I get vibes of him meshing a couple of his father's movies together with scanners and Videodrome. To break this down a bit farther, I'll start with the first part of that statement. Much like scanners, we are dealing with espionage. If memory serves me there... That is part of what they are planning to do with these psychic abilities before, you know, things kind of hit the fan. Here we're getting something similar, but in the sense that they're controlling the body of someone through a machine. I don't want to spoil the older movie, but there's a bit of melding minds as well and, you know, sucking of brains, which is kind of what you're getting here. And we're also seeing this happen with Tasia, and then the character of Colin is also experiencing this. Because, you know, he has somebody living inside of his head and he can't have somebody in there too long. Now, they don't really necessarily care about, you know, what happens to him in the end because, I mean, he's going to become the scapegoat. But they are worrying that there's going to be bleeding over. And, I mean, if he takes over, he could really ruin things because memories from Tassie are coming to him. And the other part of that is the Videodrome reference. This company is going for a New World Order, which draws parallels there. And we also get some body horror in this movie. I was expecting with some of that, you know, because previous film that I've seen by Cronenberg, you know, Antiviral has that. And heck, his father is the master of the subgenre, which is partly why I'm comparing, you know, to take elements from two of his films for this one. Now, at this point, I should probably shift over really quick to cover that aspect of the movie of the body horror. It was interesting because I debated whether to call this or that or not. The movie has a few different places where we get really graphic elements, but it doesn't necessarily feel like that type of movie overall. There's a scene where someone is attacked and their face is mangled, and that looked completely real, and I was really shocked at how well they did that. Any of the other attacks fall into this as well. Like You literally feel like you're seeing a knife cut into skin and how bloody and just vicious it is. And then there's this also interesting like face-melting scene where we're having Colin actually wear a Tasia face like a mask. But the thing that they're doing here is I think a lot of this, and this is actually something you'd find in like the movie Dreamcatcher, we're seeing the inside of like each other's head where not really like a library like we get in those movies, but we're just kind of getting them to see the battle over who is control of the brain at that time. You can't really see anything in the background, which I think is kind of a cool thing, and you can tell who is in charge because the other person is blurry. But it all makes sense of the story and making it that much creepier, you know, seeing this whole thing play out like that. And I do have to give credit to the cinematography here as well. They have images that are blurry and making it feel like we're actually experiencing these people. And a lot of this happens with their con when they're having feeling confusion and trying to, you know, be that play out without necessarily, like, telling us that. Uh, this is a strong part of the film for sure. To just bring us back a little bit to some of the story elements here, I really like the idea of these assassins using people's bodies. I've already given some examples of different things that are using you know, a similar premise here, so I'll shift it over to the elements of the brain melting together. Tasia is great at what she does. She notices things that should stop her from doing what she's doing, but she ignores it because, you know, I think there's a little bit of arrogance there that she's so good at what she does. Colin seems to be pretty strong-willed as well, which I think makes for a perfect storm that if he was a little bit weaker in his will, she might have been fine to go through everything. But with her, you know, being a little bit diminished and him being who he is, I think it really creates issues here, and I think that's a cool thing to play with. I think that makes for an interesting climax as well, and this went places I wasn't expecting it to. I will say, though, it is a little bit long, though. 
And due to this, I did find myself waning in interest a bit in the middle until it pulled me back into everything in the end. Then I think I should take this to the acting of the movie. Riseboro is an actress that I didn't know about until recently, and she really just impresses me with the roles that she's taking on. I don't want to come off as mean, but I don't really find her attractive. But I think with how she looks in this movie, it plays so well because she just looks somebody who is disheveled and somebody who's just gone through a lot, and then things are just weighing on her mentally, and we can see that she's breaking down cognitively. She also plays well here with just being worn out, as I was saying. Lee is a solid actress in this smaller role. Abbott is really good as well. I've seen him before, and like I said, other movies, he does such a good job there, and his performance here as well. Middleton and Bean are both really good in, you know, they're kind of smaller roles, and I mean, Bean really just plays a jerk and does it so well that I was impressed. And then there's this weird dynamic of how the rich live which really makes sense why Tasia feels out of place. And I think it works well, though, into making Colin, you know, seem like he's different going through things. And to help this kind of weird feeling, we have Connie, Hito, Horn, Darag, Campbell, and Doran Lee to help build this gap as they're all friends of the Ava character. And then Sutherland and Graham Arbothnot are also both solid in their roles as well. And there's some really heartbreaking things that happens once Colin decides that he might have to fight back. Now, this is all I really wanted to go over for this movie. It's still a little bit new to have some trivia, so I won't do anything there. But if you couldn't tell, I really enjoyed the concept and the story that they were building. The acting was good in carrying what they were going for, and the realistic effects give it a body horror feel. I think the cinematography was also really good for helping there. The cinematography fit for what was needed. I didn't really have any issues there. And if I did, it would be that this runs just a bit long. And I did lose interest for a bit in like near like the second half of the middle, like before we get to the third act. It does pull me back in there though. This will be a movie that I will need to revisit just to make sure that there might have been things that I might have missed and a rewatch would really kind of help solidify some of the things that I was thinking and you know make sure I also didn't miss anything. I would rate this as a good movie though. Not one I would recommend to everyone, as there are some pretty vicious scenes, but if you can get past that, this is really an interesting idea of blending horror and sci-fi in my opinion, and I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. So what I'm going to go ahead and do though is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank you for joining me here on episode number 49 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Now, just to close everything out here, if you'd like to send me an email, you can send that at to journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to send me anything to read on the show, you can definitely do that there. And if you have any questions or anything like that or anything you don't want to be read on the air, just kind of let me know in that. That would just be greatly appreciated as, you know, any feedback or anything like that through that venue. If you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes, it's Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. I will have the link in the show notes. If you'd like to add me on Facebook, you can do so at David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. If you'd also like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram as well, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And then if you want to download the Flick Chat app, that's available on Android and iOS. And once you download that, if you just you put in my join code of Journey with a Cinephile, you can get in touch with me over there. And then the last thing I would ask for you to do is if you could rate and review as well as subscribe to whatever podcatching app you are listening to so that way you never miss a new episode. And you can also kind of let me know what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like just so I can make this the best show possible. Now, I do have another milestone here of episode number 50. I'm not sure if I'm going to actually do anything special for that one just because episode 52 is, you know, right around the corner. That'll be, you know, my one year of, you know, doing this podcast, which is kind of crazy to think about. So I'm going to go ahead and do just have another journey through the aughts episode there. Not necessarily sure which one the two movies will be on that one as of yet. I do have some movie challenges, movies that are, you know, from 2020 that I can pick out, and then I'll figure out one from the 1960 list that I am still, you know, working through and everything like that. But that's all I really kind of wanted to do to kind of get you up to speed and everything like that. Whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time. This is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., signing off.